The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, you are so good to us. And, and as we come before you this morning and reflect on, on the cross, and we reflect on your Son who came to the earth, who died on the cross for our sins, I pray that you would help us to grasp the depth of what your redemption means in our lives. Open your eyes, our, our eyes, to, to the truth from your word, Lord. I ask that you would, you would speak through me because you alone transform lives. I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's an honor and a privilege to have the opportunity to preach this morning. For those of you who don't know, I'm Andrew Friesen, but, but a lot of you will know my sister Mel and my brother Tim, as they're often part of the worship team. I've been attending White Ridge since I moved to Winnipeg about two years ago, but it feels like I've been coming here for, for a lot longer, as I always came with Mel and Tim when I would visit. And God's taken me on, on quite the journey these past few years, and, and as He's been directing me back into full-time ministry. But that part of my journey is a, is a story for another day. And it's an exciting day for, for multiple reasons. First, we, we have a wedding today for Dave and for Lorraine. And I had the privilege of getting to know Lorraine this, this past year while we served on the Grief Share ministry together. What a blessing it was being a part of that ministry, walking alongside people through some of the toughest valleys in life, and seeing God meet them in the midst of their pain and their sorrow. And the added blessing was serving with this amazing woman of God, Lorraine. And, and God's brought this awesome man of God, Dave, into her life, and today they're getting married. However, I, I did promise to her that I wouldn't go overtime this morning. You know, I don't, I don't want to delay this joyous moment. What a, what a better pre-wedding sermon than, than to focus on Christ and what he did on the cross as he's going to be at the center of their marriage. So if I do go overtime this morning, we'll just say this is a, an extension of their wedding sermon. And that's the other exciting about, part about this morning. I get to preach on, on the best chapter in the entire Gospel of John. I know a lot of the, the preachers on the, on the team have been saying that throughout this series, but, but I think I've got a pretty legitimate case yeah, for, for my chapter being the best. But to be completely honest, I, I didn't feel that way when, when I initially found out that I'd be preaching on John 19. My first thought was, hmm, the crucifixion chapter... Well, everybody in the church is, knows that story, and how am I going to bring something new to the congregation that hasn't already been said? And I, and I came before God with, the, with these concerns, and I, and I sought after Him in prayer, and as God sometimes does and gives a gentle reminder to us, um, He reminded me of, of the depth and the importance of both this chapter and the crucifixion in general. 
John 19 is the climax of not only the gospel of John, but also of redemptive history and the biblical narrative. It's the fulfillment of all of Jesus' teaching throughout this gospel. The Lamb of God from chapter 1 is being led to the slaughter. The living water from chapter 4 is being poured out. And the good shepherd from chapter 10 is, is laying down his life for his sheep. First and foremost, for the glory of his Father, of our Father. But also so that we can have abundant life. Everything from the beginning of time, was leading up to this moment in history when Jesus forever changed how we live. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we can now truly live as God intended for us from the time of creation in relationship with him. We're no longer bound by the chains that sin enslaves us in. We have lasting freedom We have eternal hope. We have unspeakable joy. Whether you've been a Christian for for one day or for 70 years, spending time at the cross should bring you to your knees in humble adoration of our Lord and our Savior who suffered and died in our place. And if you're here this morning and you haven't met this Jesus yet, my hope is And my prayer is that God opens your eyes to the truth that he is the only way to life as it was meant to be. Needless to say, this is an important chapter that we'll be focusing on this morning. It's unique in that Jesus says very little throughout the chapter. It's quite the contrast from, from chapters 14 to 17. Yet, what little he does say, it carries so much depth and meaning. The majority of the chapter is the story of what took place immediately before, during, and after the crucifixion. And this morning, we'll be doing a fairly quick flyover of the chapter. We'll be taking a a big picture view of the narrative, and we'll be stopping at a few of the key moments that are unique to John's gospel. And from there, we'll circle back and we'll focus on three of the most important words that were ever uttered. It is finished. As Doug mentioned last week, John's account of the crucifixion is in harmony with the synoptics, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All of the key points are the same. However, John brings a unique perspective to the story because as far as we know, he was the only disciple to be actually physically present at the crucifixion. He was Jesus' beloved disciple, and he remained with him until the very end. If you'd open up your Bibles with me to John 19 and follow along as we walk through this monumental day in history. The first 16 verses of John 19 are a continuation of chapter 18, where we saw Pilate going back and forth between Jesus and then the Jews who wanted him crucified. And Pilate's an an, an interesting character because he recognized that Jesus was innocent. And he even attempted to reason with the Jewish mob. So he said multiple times in chapter 18 and now in 19 that that he found no guilt in Jesus. 
there seemed to be a part of him that desired justice. Yet, at the same time, he was wrapped up in himself. His power, his authority, he he loved the power that his position gave him. And he didn't want to lose that. So, So he sought to find a loophole that would please both sides. And this is why Pilate has Jesus flogged in the opening verses of the chapter. He's attempting to elicit sympathy from the mob in the hopes that it will calm their thirst for blood. The soldiers, they beat Jesus, the Son of God, over and over again with a scourge, which was, it was a short whip made of two or three leather ropes with pieces of glass and, and metal attached at different places. And they placed a crown of thorns on his head and they clothed him in a purple robe, insulting him that whole time, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And Pilate brought Jesus out after this torture and this humiliation, and again he said, I, I, found, I find no guilt in him. Yet the chief priests and the officials continued to call for Jesus to be crucified. And they insisted in verse 7, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Upon hearing this, Pilate is he's struck with fear. His Roman superstition held that, that the gods that they believed in, they, they, they had sons that would come to earth. So out of this fear, Pilate, he, he begins to question Jesus about his divinity and he emphasizes that he has the authority to either free or crucify Jesus. But instead of answering Pilate's question about divinity and in the way that Jesus often answered people, he starts talking about something else. He, he talks about God's sovereignty. And he says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. We know from Romans 13.1 that there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Pilate is not the one in control here, even though he may think that he is. And Jesus shows his complete and his utter faith in the will of the Father. God is, he's the one orchestrating all of these events. And Jesus is acting out of surrender and out of obedience. And even after hearing this, Pilate, he, he continued to try and have Jesus released. However, these events had been orchestrated by God himself. They could not be opposed. The Jews continued to clamor and shout for Jesus to be crucified. Crucify him, they said. And Pilate finally relented, and, and when the chief priests They appealed to Caesar, not God, but Caesar as their only king. So Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. This next stop on our journey starts at verse 17. 
And it's here that we find the Son of God suffering the most brutal and painful form of capital punishment ever invented. Jesus is crucified at Golgotha, the place of the skull, between two other criminals. Each criminal had a notice declaring their crime fastened to their cross. John's gospel tells us that that Pilate had Jesus' inscription written out and not just Aramaic, the language of the Jews, but, but also Latin and in Greek. And it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And the three languages are, are significant because it's, it's foreshadowing that the gospel is for all nations, not just the Jews. God loved the whole world that he gave his son for us. And the chief priests naturally opposed the inscription. <laughs> they were angry about it, but Pilate simply refused to change it. He said, it, it is what it is. After Jesus is crucified, the four soldiers began to divide up his belongings into equal shares. And he would have had a, a turban, uh, a pair of sandals, an undergarment, which is the, the seamless robe the passage talks about, an outer garment, and then a girdle. And the four men each took a piece of clothing, and then they gambled for that seamless robe as it, it would have had the most value out of all the items. And this was in fulfillment of Psalm 22, 18. Now near the cross were Jesus' mother Mary and his beloved disciple John. And what's important for us to understand is that Jesus would have only been about a foot off the ground. The cross wasn't massive with Jesus high in the air like in the movies Romans designed it this way so that it was even more emotionally excruciating for the one dying on the cross. People could come right up to you almost face to face in order to to insult you. And in this instance, the, the relatives and the loved ones of Jesus would have been literally at the foot of the cross, witnessing firsthand his sorrow and his agony. Yet, in in the midst of what must have been such unbearable pain, Jesus was was a man. And Jesus has this absolutely beautiful conversation with his mother and with John. And verses 26 to 27 says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus' compassion and his love at this moment in time is truly astounding. His desire to honor his mother remained even when he was on the cross suffering. And his choice of of John as a caregiver has much depth as well. And Jesus had other brothers, but they did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. Mary's spiritual well-being was more important to Jesus than familial ties. And in the Jewish culture, that would have been unheard of. It would have been scandalous to do that because it should have been Jesus' brother's 
who are taking care of his mother. Jesus is giving us the first picture of the family of God that the church would become through his death and his resurrection. The adoption of us into God's family and the beauty of what the church would be. And our third stop this morning is at the death of the Lamb of God. The climax of all human history when everything changed. And verses 28 to 30 says, and verses 28 to 30, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. It is finished. This was not the final gasp of someone defeated, but rather it was a triumphant declaration. Jesus knew that he had completed his father's work. He was in control until the end. Death did not even have power over Jesus. He willingly gave up his spirit once he knew that all was fulfilled. And we'll be circling back in a few minutes to this statement, it is finished. And after Jesus had given up his spirit, the soldiers, they went to the three men that were being crucified in order to break their legs. The Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, and by breaking their legs, the men wouldn't have been able to lift themselves up to breathe while on the cross, and they would have suffocated quickly. However, when the soldiers approached Jesus, they realized that he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. Jesus remained the perfect, unblemished, sacrificial lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. Instead of breaking his legs, the soldiers pierced Jesus' side and blood and water came out. If there was any question of Jesus' humanity or his death, this moment proved it. Jesus was truly dead. Many theologians have they've sought to, to find deeper theological meaning to this blood and this water, maybe as a, as a reference to communion and, and baptism. And I can see the logic in them coming to this conclusion because there's so much depth and, and layers and nuances in this Gospel of John. But really, first and foremost, what John is seeking to do in his Gospel is to bear witness to the death and the resurrection of Jesus so that others would believe in him. It's like our banner says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Finally, we come to the burial of Jesus in verse 38, where God's sovereign plan continues to unfold. We find two unsuspecting men directly involved in the preparation and burial of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, he's a rich, prominent member of the Jewish council. He's a righteous man 
who had not consented to what the council did to Jesus. And verse 38 also tells us that he's a follower of Jesus, um, albeit he's, he's a secret follower. And Joseph asked Pilate for Jesus' body, and he's given permission to bury him. Through Joseph, God had orchestrated a fresh tomb to be available for Jesus, close to where he was crucified. And the other man that takes part in the preparation and burial of, of Jesus is Nicodemus. And there's been an incredible transformation in his life since we last saw him speaking with Jesus in John 3. Nicodemus, he started off with confusion in the night. You know, he was in spiritual darkness. He's now openly confessing his belief in Jesus in the daylight. Jesus had taken Nicodemus from darkness into light. And Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to prepare Jesus' body. And together with Joseph of Arimathea, they bury our Lord and our Savior. And as I was seeking God in this chapter, he kept bringing me back to the triumphant declaration of Jesus, it is finished. I spent a long time reflecting on those three words. What exactly was Jesus meaning when he said, it is finished? What is the it referring to? We've seen throughout the Gospel of John a, a beautiful depth in his writing. There are typically more, more nuances and layers to what he's trying to tell us. For example, if we remember back to chapter 4, at the well, there's the living water that Jesus speaks of. And then in chapter 6, the bread of life. These three words, it is finished, they're no different they carry a depth of meaning that we need to spend some time sitting in and unpacking. And now, a major reason why we tend to miss a lot of the depth of Jesus' declaration here is, is the separation between our English translations from, from the Greek and the cultural context of the time. And these words, it is finished, are actually one Greek word, tetelestai. And the word means it is finished. It stands finished, and it will always be finished. It is finished, it stands finished, and it will always be finished. What Christ did on the cross is for eternity. At the same time, this Greek word carried a lot of weight in the culture. And it was used by people in everyday life to convey a variety of different things. We're going to look at four ways in which the Greek word was used, and that will give us a much deeper understanding of what Jesus was saying here. And we'll call them our four its. If you wanted to, to follow along in the, the bulletin insert this morning, we've got those four its listed, as well as the three implications we'll be going through later. So we'll be calling these our four its. And they'll go from the most basic surface level of understanding to greater depth. Then we'll close this morning with three life-transforming and life-giving implications from Jesus' death on the cross. The first way that this declaration, it is finished, was used was by servants to masters when they completed a task. The word conveyed to the master, I have completed the work that was assigned to me. 
This is really the easiest way of understanding what Jesus is saying. Um, back in, in 17.4, Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What the Father had called Jesus to do was now complete, and he could give up his spirit. We could leave it there. We could move on. But, but I think that we would be missing a lot of what it was that Jesus had completed on the cross. Our second it is referring to the prophecies about the Messiah that we see throughout the Old Testament. Artists use the Greek word to declare that a painting or a sculpture was complete and that it was perfect. Throughout the Old Testament, God had been painting this beautiful picture of what the Messiah would look like and what he would do when he came to earth. His picture was now complete. Even while suffering on the cross, Jesus was intentional about fulfilling the final prophecies. Verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. Jesus had completed his part in the Messianic prophecies, and he could now give up his spirit. The next two ways in which Jesus' words, it is finished, were used are in reference to him as the sacrificial lamb of God, the substitutionary atonement for our sins. It is referring to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who achieved our salvation through his suffering and death on the cross. When a priest examined an animal sacrifice, he would use the Greek word tetelestai to declare if the animal was faultless. And this was crucial because any sacrifice before God had to be perfect. From the time sin entered the world, death entered along with it. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve death because of this reality, because of our sin. The sacrifice of animals, it had to do with the death of an innocent in place of another that deserved that same death. These animal sacrifices, they became a symbol of how sins were to be taken away. But we know that they couldn't take away that final penalty. And this is where Jesus enters the picture, as the faultless Lamb of God. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus lived the perfect life, the most blameless life, and he took the death that we deserve upon himself when he died on the cross. The incredible truth is that this sacrifice is eternal. Old Testament sacrifices covered sin temporarily. They had to keep offering sacrifices over and over again. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross took away the sin of the world. Our final it is referring to the finality of Jesus' sacrifice. Merchants would use this Greek word to declare on a bill of sale that the debt was paid in full. 
there was nothing further to do but accept that what you owed was now covered. Hebrews 10.10 says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. There was once a rather eccentric evangelist named Alexander Wooten who was approached by a flippant young man who asked, What must I do to be saved? Well, it's too late, Wooten replied, and he went about his work gardening. And the young man, he became alarmed. Well, do you mean that it's too late for me to be saved? Well, is there nothing that I can do? It's too late, said Wooten. It's it's already been done. The only thing you can do is believe. And this is the hope that we have in Christ. Our debt has been paid in full. There's nothing that we could do or could have ever done to pay off this debt on our own. It is offered to us freely through Christ's death on the cross. We simply believe and we surrender our lives to his lordship as we talked about last week in John 18. What does this mean for us as we go on with our lives? We could spend an eternity reflecting on the implications that the cross has on our lives, but because of obvious time constraints, we have have a wedding to get to. Um, I want to focus on on three this morning. And there are three themes that, that we have seen throughout the Gospel of John that have now been fulfilled through Jesus' death on the cross. And there are three that have intersected with my story, and and I'm guessing a lot of yours as well. First, we we know God's character in its fullness because it is finished. We know God's character in its fullness because it is finished. We see his sovereignty, we see his love, we see his goodness. There was ever any question about who God is, that has now been laid to rest. Jesus has made the Father known to us through his life and now his death on the cross. Not only did God Almighty humble himself by becoming a man, but he took on the sins of all humanity when he suffered and he died in our place. There has and never will be again a greater act of love. And this reality is so important to regularly come back to and to reflect on. We all know that that life can be incredibly difficult and challenging at times through, through the many things that we go through. And it can be easy to become disillusioned, to question God's love, or his goodness. And I found in my life that, that spending time at the foot of the cross helps those doubts and those fears to fade away as I'm reminded of the loving sacrifice that Jesus made for us. That he was willing to pour himself out. Go on that cross in our place. 
Second, we have lasting freedom from sin and condemnation because it is finished. We have lasting freedom from sin and condemnation because it is finished. Romans 8, 1 and 2 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Yet, it's, it's not uncommon for followers of Christ to continue living in condemnation. I see it all the time. Friends, I know I went through a period of my life as a Christian living in that condemnation. That's what, whether it's, it's from what we've done in our past or, or what's been done to us. We live in guilt or we live in shame. Christ died on the cross so that we would have lasting freedom. The enemy loves to distort this reality and keep us bound to chains that no longer even exist. Those chains are gone because of what Christ did on the cross. And this is why we need to keep coming to the cross to be reminded of this truth that if you are free... You are free indeed. Third, we can now have life to the full and joy made complete in His presence because it is finished. We can now have life to the full and joy made complete in His presence because it is finished. We had always been created to be in relationship with God, but our sin got in the way. We're not truly living if we are not in relationship with Him. And Jesus' death on the cross made all of that possible. Jesus' death allows us to come before God into His presence when we surrender our lives to Him. Psalm 1611 says it so beautifully. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The life abundant that John has been telling us about throughout his gospel is now possible because it is finished. Even when life is difficult and challenging, we can have unspeakable joy because of Christ and because of our relationship with him. Over the last eight years, I've had to come back to the cross on many occasions to be reminded of these truths. I went to Briarcrest College after high school in order to become a pastor. And I met my wife during my first year at Briarcrest. We were married during my, my third year, and I was excited to begin a life of pastoral ministry when I graduated. However, life took a turn while I was doing my pastoral internship, and my dad took sick and he passed away. And I attempted to, to quickly push forward after his death, and I began candidating at a, a couple of different churches. But God knew that, that I wasn't ready to start my life as a pastor, and, and no doors opened. About eight months after my dad passed away, while I was still attempting to process his loss, my wife had a mental breakdown and began suffering from major depression and anxiety. 
For those of you who've had people close to you suffering from mental illness, you'll understand the feeling of helplessness that I experienced. With all of my being, I wanted to help her, but it wasn't something that could simply be fixed. All I could do was get on my knees and ask God for His help, for His wisdom, for His strength. After two years of suffering from depression, she declared that she no longer considered herself a Christian. She had come to the conclusion that that God either didn't exist, or if He did, He was evil and He was vindictive. I was devastated by her declaration, but, but I was resolved to love her as Christ calls us in the hopes that she might see Christ in me. Sadly, this never happened, and, and she slowly pulled away from me as, as drastic changes took place in, within her. In September 2013, my wife told me that, that she no longer wanted to be married and that she was leaving me. That was by far the most devastating day of my life. And the two years after my wife left me were the most difficult that I've had to endure. Being rejected and abandoned by the one person who was supposed to stick by me no matter what, it absolutely destroyed me. I struggled daily to deal with the fact that in the eyes of my wife, I wasn't good enough. There were so many times that, that the thoughts and the questions They overwhelmed my heart and my mind to the point that I couldn't take it anymore. Why was I not good enough? Where had I gone wrong? What could I have done differently? I felt like I had done everything within me to to try and be what she needed me to be. Nonetheless, at the end of the day, it was still not good enough. I tried with all of my heart to seek God during this time, but he seemed distant, and these constant thoughts and questions, it drove me to a dark place. But over the last three years, God has taken me through a healing journey, and he's shown me that he was with me every step of the way through those, through those experiences. And this healing journey is forever transformed the man and the follower of Christ that I am today. It was the refining fire of 1 Peter 1 that I went through. Much of that journey took place at the foot of the cross, being reminded of God's love and His goodness. That he was still sovereign and in control, even though I couldn't understand most of what was going on in my life. His ways are truly higher than our ways. I had to surrender the guilt and the shame that came from the rejection and the loss of my wife. In spending time again at the foot of the cross, Jesus reminded me that I have freedom from him. I didn't have to live in that shame, in the darkness of that shame. He's redeemed that part of my story, and he desires for me to reach out to others and to share the hope that I continue to find in him. We all have a story of God's redemption. Every single one of us 
And a relationship with Christ has a story of what he's done. And he desires to use that for his glory. Don't live in shame of what God has done in and through your life. It's through the word of your testimony that you will be pointing people to Christ and the hope that you have in him. And through all of these experiences, I've continued to abide in Christ. And God has shown me what it means to have life abundant in him and a joy and a peace that surpasses human understanding. And as the worship team comes up, I want you to take a few minutes to reflect on the cross of God's character his love, of his goodness, of his sovereignty over all circumstances, of the freedom from sin and condemnation that you have in Jesus, a freedom from guilt, a freedom from shame, and the abundant life of unspeakable joy that is found only through him. What is it this morning that you need to lay at the foot of the cross? What do you need to bring before Jesus? If you don't know this Jesus that I've talked about this morning, please talk to myself or one of the pastors after the service. So we'd love to help you get to know him. I'll close in prayer, and then we'll head into a time of reflection. Jesus, our precious, precious Lord and Savior, We thank you for for the sacrifice that you made for us. We stand in awe of you, of what you did. Because it is finished, we have freedom in you. We can live as we were always intended to live. And we can know you, which is the best thing of all being in relationship with you. Help us as we go forward today and in this week to understand what that means in our lives, Lord. Help us to take hold of your redemption within us. That we would continue to come back to the cross and be reminded of these truths. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.